0: Hello, my name is Andy Clark and welcome to the podcast. Nearly 30 years ago, Eleanor Ostrom published a groundbreaking book, Governing the Commons. In it, she showed that users of natural and agricultural resources can and do govern such resources themselves. This without having to rely on hierarchical state or corporate regulation or on market pricing mechanisms. By setting up rules together and monitoring compliance with these rules, commoners are able to manage resources themselves. This work on the idea of Commons has been extended to the governance of Knowledge Commons. So how does this apply to universities? In principle, sharing resources such as data, methods, publication and the curriculum is a foundation of university education and development but in practice, many academic resources are currently managed in a rigid and bureaucratic way, and users and producers of these resources are often denied the chance to express their wishes and highlight alternatives. The podcast is made up of a series of interviews and recordings made at a special workshop looking into the idea of the commons in academia. It was held at the Utrecht University by the Utrecht Young Academy the Open Science Community Utrecht, and the research collective De Waag. The podcast starts with an interview on the exploration of what we mean by the commons, a historical perspective to give insights into where we are now.
1: I'm Tine de Moor. I'm a professor of Institutions for Collective Action in Historical Perspective at Utrecht University.
0: OK, and we're talking about uh, the commons today. And you gave a presentation on the commons, commons and, uh, and the, how that's applied to academia. What is the commons?
1: Well, I would first like to speak about a common. That's how I approach it. I approach it mainly from the historical perspective, but I think um, the historical perspective gives us a very clear perspective of what commons really are. I think it's about a very specific form of governance whereby a group of individuals, so a group of citizens, for example, unites in an organization, and they govern together a collectivity of resources. So they, for example, govern a pasture land with trees on it, or they govern a, 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 a another type of good together. But what is really vital is that they have... Uh, as a group, they have ownership over those resources, but as an individual, they can't just subtract from those resources individual units. They have to agree on collectively how to um, subtract resources from this. Because of that, people form an institution, and that institution consists out of rules. And these rules have to adapt, have to be adapted over time, but these rules help to solve the social dilemma that you get when people have to deal with a collective resource.
0: Okay, and you need those rules, otherwise the resource will be depleted and will be gone?
1: Quite possibly, yes. Um, I work especially on on types of resources that are indeed depletable or that at least they can regenerate some of them, but um, if people take too much the resources will be over harvested and they will disappear in due time. Um, There's also situations whereby people um, create together resources that are less susceptible for um, overuse and uh, for example we've we've heard today also interesting examples of people who create digital resources together in a collective environment uh, but they allow others to harvest them for free um, they're a bit on the on the edge of what you would call a common but when they're governed as such I would definitely include them
0: okay and so how does the commons, the idea of a common, then apply to academia, to universities?
1: Well, it's not that straightforward, but basically well, there are several ways to, to make the link between commons and universities. First of all, there's a historical link and we see that universities as a form of collaboration between scholars emerge uh, and, and rapidly develop in the same period as when we see other forms of institutions for collective action, such as commons, guilds, water board, irrigation communities, etc., when they emerge. And we see them emerging from the late 10th, 11th, 12th century across Europe. And that's also when universities emerge. And that has to do with the conditions in which they could develop in Europe. Uh, but also because uh, people did see collectivities to solve problems. Um, on the other hand, the university... The universities that were established and have, contrary to the commons that emerged, and they didn't have haven't they haven't disappeared in due time. They they stayed alive, but they also changed internally quite a bit. They changed in such a way that we're we're not talking about cooperative governance, but but corporate governance often. It's it's more a matter of top-down governance with a lot of outsourcing of services these days to private partners. And with a lot of top-down uh, control, and in many cases not much room for, well, for interfering as an individual in the collectivity about several things that are not running in the way you could, you could benefit from them.
0: And is it is it then a, a process of, of reclaiming something now, um, universities which are maybe drifting towards being corporately governed or top-down governed, as you say, and sort of reclaiming that as a common area for, for a community, for a society, for a, for a country. Is, is, should we see it in the terms of that sort of struggle?
1: There's two sides to the, the relationship commons and universities. On the one hand, there's a discussion we started with on to what extent can commons give inspiration to universities uh, to reorganize the governance of universities to make it better in terms of governance. That's one side of the story. The other side of the story is how can uh, universities connect with the societal debate and with developments in terms of new collectivities emerging there. Um, uh, well, already for, for quite a few decennia. I think that the first... Um, the first thing is that we have to have the openness to reorganize um, the university in a more, in a flatter, in a more democratic way, whereby um, one of the most important impediments right now is that there's a, a huge distrust already um, between um, people working at the university. Um, you know, the the, the, the whole, the, the structures of universities these days don't, um, They don't give the impression anymore that uh, the people who work there are trusted. There's a lot of control, a lot of red tape as well within the universities. And I think people need to feel trusted if you want them to contribute. Universities have to connect better with societal developments. I think that is going to demand also that universities are better supported, financially also by governments, that the, the contribution of universities as one of the most important teaching instruments, so to speak, in society, is acknowledged more. And it would also be very nice if governments actually expressed their trust in universities.
0: That was Tina de Moore She's a professor of Institutions for Collective Action in Historical Perspective at Utrecht University. Next, for more on the concept of the commons and how it applies to universities, we have...
2: Yes, my name is Bianca Kramer, I work at Utrecht University Library and I'm also involved in Force 11, which is an international organisation of people interested in bringing scholarly communication forward.
0: Bianca gives us her take on the concept of the commons and goes on to talk about publishing as an example of how things are currently far from optimal.
2: Yeah, it can mean a lot of different things, but basically it's the question how um, processes in university and resources within the university can be governed. And in this case, can be governed by researchers themselves rather than uh, centrally or controlled by by companies or governments. But how people can have their own say in what's happening.
0: Why is this necessary?
2: Um, I think it's necessary from a democratic standpoint, it's really good to give people their own say. It gives people more control and it also gives people control to prioritize what they find important and make sure that that's actually what's happening and not that other... Like economic or other considerations play a well role in what's happening
0: and, and is this the case now then do people have a say now or are we a long way away from that
2: uh, i think in general we're quite a long way away from that and locally for some cases there, there is more control what i talked about this morning specifically is is publishing and i think that's a clear example where perhaps the interests of researchers and also the interests of the, of the public are perhaps not best served by the way the system is organized right now
0: why? How, can you explain how it's organized now then and how that interest is not best served?
2: Yeah, there are a couple of things at play. Uh, for one thing, uh, in publishing, if you do research and you want to make that public and you want to, to spread the word and let people know about it, uh, there's currently a big selection on not only what's good research, but also what's deemed important or novel enough. And that's a big barrier against things being published. Uh, It's also selection in the kind of research that's being done and the kind of research that's being published. It's one reason why negative results, for instance, are uh, very hard to get published. So people don't know about them. So people repeat the same experiments, not realizing that it has been done already. So those kind of things.
0: And who is making that selection?
2: Uh, it's partly researchers themselves, because they are the ones, um, if we talk about journal publishing, then the selection of what gets published in a journal is partly decided by peer reviewers, those are researchers themselves, but it's also decided by the editors of the, of the journals. And that's exactly where that dichotomy of uh, do we publish what's done well, or do we also publish on what's deemed important or what's deemed to have to get the most interest where those two things intersect and especially for commercial journals that uh, of course when they publish what's what's most important or most interesting it gets them more subscriptions and so it it feeds into the the money chain and that's not conducive to, to publishing the most effective and efficient publishing so in marketing. So
0: it's sensational, big headlines, that helps them sell their, their publications.
2: Yeah, it's of course a very black and white um, uh, depiction of things, because yes, the judgment is also done on quality, and there's also, it's not all a bad system, but I think it can be done differently, that serves both the interest of the researchers better and the interest of the public better.
0: And you had a good example of that from Latin America. Could you explain what that example is?
2: Yeah. Uh, In Latin America, things are organized a bit differently in that a lot of the journals there are not from commercial publishers, but they are from institutions. So institutions invest in their own journals. It's run on a common platform. So there are a lot less costs for, for publishing. And it's all open access. And importantly, the authors themselves are not charged for that, nor the readers
0: are charged. And how did that system come about in Latin America? Has it always been like that? Or is it, have they changed to that system, do you know?
2: It's rather the opposite. Uh, they're changing more towards a more commercial system. And that's because what is deemed important. If universities judge their researchers and if funding agencies judge their researchers on the journals that they publish in, and the high impact factor journals are deemed more important, then there's also a tendency, also in Latin America, for authors to want to publish in, again, the same commercial journals
0: are there other things beyond publishing them which are you know intrinsic part of commons and the, the idea of a commons in universities
2: yeah there are many things you can think about basically any resource that's being used and how that's allocated we put up some examples this morning uh, that that can go from physical things like the physical spaces who decides who gets uh, who gets to use some physical spaces and is that only the university community or do you open up your spaces for society as well for uh, citizen, uh, citizen groups, um, how do you distribute funding, how do you allocate equipment within a research group, who gets time at the microscope, for instance, uh, how do you distribute funding, um, what happens to your data, data that we produce, who owns your data and who decides what should happen with that. All, all those kind of things you can question or look at who owns the resource and who governs the resource.
0: Bianca Kramer there. She's been working on commons issues and is a member of Force 11, an international group dedicated to advancing scholarly communications. When it comes to governance in universities, getting from where we are now to a more commons-based system will take considerable change. So how to make progress?
3: My name is Lars Stammers. I'm a professor at the School of Governance at Utrecht University.
0: Lars is focusing on behaviour change.
3: Yeah, so my uh, chair is related to uh, public management and behavior, so I'm very interested in behavior change and also developing a book about nudges, which is one way to change behavior. And we're talking
0: about um, the commons and open open, um, source, open science uh, in, in the university community, in academia, so what's the relation, why is behavior change important in that
3: respect? Um, yes, because I think at the moment not all data is open, not all uh, publications are, are uh, open access, so in a way we are dependent from a, on a top-down from people developing new policies, but in the end it happens on the ground, really researchers changing their behaviors, for instance making their data openly available. And there are very, uh, various incentives or behaviour change strategies you could use in order to uh, move more to open science.
0: And what are some of the big behavioural change challenges when it gets people from moving to the current system of, of academia to, to the open data commons system that uh, people are trying, you're trying to achieve at this conference today?
3: Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges is uh, how the journal uh, subscription system is now uh, being set up and uh, that uh, a few very large academic publishers, which are for profit, they hold on to like the biggest uh, journals like Nature, Science and uh, other related journals. So, And that's something uh, which is not that easy to uh, replace um Fire, for instance, patches. So I would say that's a, that's an important system. Another one related to that is the journal impact factor. So that that's also um, a challenge that people should be tackling. And and how can that be tackled then? Um, one way uh, which is, could be tackled is from uh, a very top down uh, uh, type of way. That, for instance, if you uh, get an ERC grant, you have to publish in all open access uh, journals and you uh, sh- uh, without article processing uh, fees. And so, that's one way. Another way is to develop your own journals. I know when I was at uh, University of California, Berkeley, that one of the professors developed a new journal, eLife, which is, I think, I'm not familiar in the field, so I could be mistaken, but it's more open access. We, as as, as a community of public administration, also developed our own um, open access journals, but they take more time. The third way would also be that we as professors don't look only at the journal impact factor, or but that we really read the article, that we evaluate the article based on our thinking of it. Is it about changing a lot of incentives then at the moment, and 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 that is that the road to open science? Uh, I don't think it's only. Uh, I think incentives are one way to change behavior, and uh, you can. There are more ways, but we could say there are, there are four. Uh, there are incentives, there are mandates or bans. And there are uh, uh, information campaigns and there are nudges. Um, so I think incentive is one way, but, all, but sometimes a mandate works better or a ban works better and we should evaluate case by case. We shouldn't be married to one type of behavioral change strategy, I would say.
0: Professor Lars Tummers there from the School for Governance at Utrecht University. He was sketching out some of the strategies that can be used to change behaviour and move the academic system towards a more commons approach. What about examples from other fields? Well, open source software development is well established. What lessons can be learned from that?
4: My name is Sander van der Waal. I work as lead of the Future Internet Lab at Waag Society.
0: What is the Waag Society for people who don't know? Vag is an organization based in Amsterdam,
4: in De Waag, the big building, uh, working on projects um, where specifically we're looking at technology in society, making sure that when technology gets applied and designed, it has the human in mind rather than corporate profits. Is how I explain it sometimes. Okay,
0: sounds good. Um, Today we're talking about commons and open science in, in universities and um, you made a comparison between the open software community, open source community, Can, what, explain, could you explain that to me please briefly?
4: Yeah, I think the main uh, interesting uh, lessons that could be learned from open source software communities is related to how uh, so software is governed in open source communities. And I made the specific uh, comparison with the Apache Software Foundation, which has been around for 20 years and has been very successful in developing software which clear with clear processes and rules. Uh, and rules of engagement and rules of getting involved in, in the decision making around how the software as a shared uh, knowledge resources uh, gets, uh, gets produced. So I think there are some in- interesting parallels that could be useful when thinking about open science in a broader sense and thinking about how in an academic setting you could uh, uh, try and, 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 uh, and, and find new ways of governing uh, the knowledge uh, outputs and, and, and processes together.
0: I guess there's always a fear that someone else will sort of, you know, make lots of money out of your knowledge or someone else will do something with your knowledge. So what's what's the incentive to be involved in an open source community in the first place? The incentive is often what's been described
4: as scratching your own itch. It's about wanting to make something happen, wanting to do something uh, and and making specific changes or features for a specific software product. And actually the the underlying idea here is that you could just take the software and just develop it for your own sake and and just not do it as part of the open source project. But by working in the project collaboratively, you don't just have what you want in in that project but you also benefit from what other, other people are contributing so by putting your own contribution out there as part of that broader pro- project you benefit from what others are putting in as well
0: what are the safeguards though to stop somebody at a later stage in a project you know running off with the, the kind of knowledge that's been developed so far
4: yeah I think that's an interesting uh, question because it it's um, assumes that that's a bad thing, that someone takes it and and, and runs away with it. Actually, the underlying assumption here is that open source is already available for everyone to do with whatever they like. There's no sort of restrictions placed on the software. If people want to take it and and go in some way, somewhere and do something with it, that's fine. And there's no no inherent sort of barrier being created to to prevent that from happening. And that's exactly the point, uh, in a way, for open source. If people want to be successful with it by trying and selling it, you know, good for them. But often what you see is that because it is open source, it's available for free for everyone, um, people will not be very successful trying to sell what's already available for free. So there there are different dynamics there that, that are not the same as in a sort of more traditional market environment.
0: So these are some of the hurdles which have already been taken in the open software community then the kind of fear of people running off with the money or fear of running off with reputation as well I guess?
4: I think reputation in the case of soft, uh, software and in, in this instance is very tightly related to how how the project is run, because everything's public, because anyone can see who's been contributing to the, to the project. And reputation in open source often works, such that those who contribute the most to an open source project, they get the rewards because they all also have the reputation. Because it's all public, everyone can see it, and there's no risk of, of, of someone trying to claim something which they hadn't done, or or trying to claim success for something that other people have contributed, because It's open and transparent, everyone can see that, so that often won't fly.
0: (laughs) And how does this all link up to universities then? yeah
4: I think the interesting thing is is when we when we in the in the workshop debate about uh, an open science commons or think about new ways of, in which the community of of academics and and, uh, and other related um, uh, stakeholders can collaborate I think what what I'm hoping this this example of open source can inspire is 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 to see how a, a disparate group of stakeholders working across different areas Uh, can successfully work on uh, a shared resource, in this case uh, a a software project but that can also, uh, you know, and it would be interesting to see to what extent that actually can be applied to other types of of knowledge, uh, projects and and products that that are relevant in the academic setting and I think it's quite nice to see um, uh, together with academia and people who are involved in these processes how Uh, how these lessons could be applied. I think that's one of the one of the exercises that we can do together. I don't work in academia myself but I can Offer this experience and, and look forward to working together with people in academia to see how that could could be of interest to that, those new developments in open science.
0: What are some of the hurdles you expect then when academia tries to sort of implement these these ideals?
4: Yeah, I think I think there there are different dynamics at stake with regards to reputation, for example, with regards to how you actually develop your career. There are lots of different ways in which. Um, your career as an academic is, is dependent upon uh, specific structures and specific um, ways of working that have been you know evolving over time that are now rapidly being disrupted by these new developments. And I think one of the core things that we need to look at is how to make sure that those new developments around open science and open access is finding also new ways of rewarding different, different collabor- collaborations, because I think that's one of the main hurdles, that people will find it difficult to engage in new ways of collaborating, being maybe more open and transparent about what they do, because they fear, as you were saying earlier, that someone might sort of run off with what they've done and, and be successful, rather than uh, they reaping the rewards of what they've done.
0: And how was that dealt with in the early days from the open source software community? I mean, they must have been through the same dilemmas. How did they deal with that and how did they solve that?
4: yeah I think I think one of the things that's crucial here is the is the transparency. So the fact that everything's publicly available actually allows for a certain kind of accountability that ensures that you you cannot make false claims about uh, about something that as I said earlier that you you've you've done when you haven't in fact done it. So I think that's one of the key lessons that that being fully open and transparent in the setup of your collaboration is helping. Uh, keep everyone honest, as well as making sure that reputation is is can be traced back to actual input and actual contributions from people and I think similar types you know when we discuss new ways of collaborating in academia I think that level of transparency is important but we also know from practice that it, that that is sometimes difficult that sometimes people are used to working in a more closed environment and more comfortable in working in a more closed environment and it might be cultural issues to being open in, in uh, from the outset in these types of collaborations so I think that's one of the one of the areas that we need to look at, how we could foster a more open, collaborative environment for academia.
0: Sander van der Waal there from the WAG research organisation. He was talking about lessons learned from the open-source software development community and how they can be relevant for the idea of the commons for universities. As well as talking to the guest speakers, I also talk to the people who put the workshop day on the Commons together. Okay, right. Can you introduce yourself, please?
5: Uh, My name is Sanli Faes and I'm assistant professor of uh, physics at Utrecht University.
0: Sanli is one of the organizers of the workshop day. Why does he think it's so necessary to introduce this concept of Commons to academics?
5: And I don't think many people really know what collective action institutions actually consist of, and what are the principles behind it. This is more, there is more knowledge about it outside academia, where people have to manage their cooperatives, so they have uh, think of collectives and ways of doing it. Inside academia, basically, the hierarchical management, hierarchical structure has always been there and has been dictated, has persisted for a very long time.
0: Uh, there's phone ringing and that means we can start <laughs> For the select group of academics attending the workshop, it certainly wasn't all theory.
6: So people have just started uh, the workshop part of the day. Um, it's uh, interactive sessions where uh, people are sitting in groups of five or six and uh, each of the groups is addressing a, a case study. And um, they're doing it by uh, a, a quite simple um, design thinking method that we prepared for the workshop. Um, which is mostly based on identifying the different components parts of, of what is the problem here. And how
5: yeah, so we chose two cases, one very specific and one very sort of general. The very specific case is, was that you have a department that has a certain budget and wants to subscribe to certain journals uh, on a yearly basis. It cannot subscribe to all the journals in that domain. Uh, how are we going to select the journals that you know there's enough funding for? And how are we going to actually revise every year, year after year? Do we still need this journal or don't, and not just be slave to historical precedent? That was one of the cases, and that has needs to be collectively decided by the department. And there are also all the actors involved and other constraints. The other one was about uh, bringing knowledge uh, or let's say, the second case, we called it Publish and Perish, uh, was you know, joking about the amount of publications which are created now by the scientific community, uh, and they're unbalanced with the amount of time we have for reading this huge amount of knowledge. And how to actually bridge this balance, how to say that if you have 10,000 articles, well, only time to read 10 of them, how do actually choose these ten to read, and which of them are more important to read, to catch up, and every single person has a different need. And that was the question we wanted to ask, uh, uh, answer and find out what are the principles, for example, we need for this selection system.
4: It's, it's, it's four
0: o'clock. It's time for these presentations and
6: discussions and evaluation. And
0: here's a snapshot of some of the ideas the participants came up with. Two groups focused on the publish and perish case: how to try and solve the dilemma of selecting the best articles from the mass of publications.
5: Maybe you expected, but the ambition we had was uh, was to have a curation system, a la Spotify, but with transparent mechanism of sorting and aggregation. Uh, our resource is, of course, all the knowledge above the preprint level, so there is a minimum criteria of eligibility to be a scientific contribution, but anything which becomes a preprint on any of the platforms is the body of knowledge. The question is how to curate it and tailor it Mm -hmm. to the needs of the reader. So there was the ambition to make a transparent mechanism for curation and it should be personalized and network-based. In the solution-wise, we actually became, uh, it altered, instead of creating one, Uh, We thought of becoming a a, a body, a test, a a certifying body that actually looks at all the existing journals or it can be existing mega journals or commercial journals but also preprints and actually get the principles we have, this one transparency, network based, uh, openness and things like that and just grade those, so give badges to the curation. I think something that you in some sense you have done and there are several criteria but this community of assessors which also should be open basically just grades all the existing curation systems based on this criteria mm-hmm. so it doesn't do anything apart from that apart from just grading the, these ones and so what to transition so of course it must be test cased in a discipline there must be transparent uh, steering committee, uh, but how to choose people into the steering committee that also have the knowledge of the discipline should follow the model, we thought of the approach, it can be a model. There must be advocacy for this group, because there must be some clots of what they claim, uh, and there must be very clear procedure created, what is the pros- process of actually giving badges, giving grades, and you know, fixing these principles. Uh, these are the things I have written, and. I um, just want to, first, before
4: we go into
7: the general discussion. With three minutes only, I will explain the actual system and where the problem is. Then, colleague uh, will uh, explain uh, how the news is. The actual problem is not, uh, well, of course, what we see and it manifests is as the increasing number of publications. Nevertheless, what we uh, envision in our discussion is that it's a... Uh, the knowledge treated as a, commo- as a commodity. And because of this pressure, researchers or academics, uh, will look for prestige or for, for money, you know, because that, and then that makes us publish, and then you have more publications to read or to evaluate. But then it's, it's, uh, uh, that's what we saw that was the, the system. And then in the resource, what first we thought uh, most of us, well, is the articles, the increasing number of articles. Actually, it changes to know. It's the critical knowledge. What we want to manage mm-hmm. is the critical knowledge. What do we do with it? Uh, and then, this is the... Uh,
2: as a commodity which creates this race to the bottom, you know, everybody wants to publish and, and we can't govern the, the quality anymore. We go to knowledge as a common good that, you know, should in a critical way be co-created to serve the community. And how do we govern that? And how does a journal play a role in that? So we imagined this journal as like, a flower with a heart shaped heart that is fed by the community but also sends its seeds into the community and that's where you know the citizen participation comes in but also the citizen valorization. Citizens are not just used and extracted for their ideas or their data but are also valorized for example by a, com- a community currency. If you contribute to knowledge you get a voucher and with this voucher you can buy new knowledge or take a course or whatever. because knowledge is not scarce or not.
0: The third group were focused and on the so question of allocating the budget for the journals. And here's a snapshot of their findings. An
6: unusual problem, as you probably never encountered in your life, having more uh, wants than money. Um, and, um, and then you know when you have this problem you have to make a decision. And um, we did. Um, and actually after all the exercises and using the methodology which was quite interesting, we figured out that in order to have a broader access to publications in a library in Netherlands, uh, probably the best thing we can do is to have a common pool of resources in other words, do pretty much what Germany and Norway already does uh, negotiate directly as a country with the publishing houses rather than independently university by university, department by department, faculty by faculty. So, yeah, it's a decision issue, so given that we have a decision issue, so we have to figure it out, governance, how we can integrate the perspective of all stakeholders. And when we're talking about stakeholders, it's not only the one that we have them here, authors, readers, funders, I guess, public and private funders, Um, But also we're talking about the infrastructure providers in the sense of uh, those who are providing the um, uh, search engines, the data archiving archiving, even the the physical infrastructures like having some buildings around that in some (coughs) places turn to be privatized and turn into very fancy hotels. So it's good to take them into the decision process and try to figure out what we can do about it and uh, then in order to come up with the governance structure we use we got a bit inspired by Ostrom's principles but we have only four food for uh,
0: thought from uh, the workshop groups and and a basis to move further um, on the questions raised and turning to san lee for some final thoughts how necessary does he think it is to spread the word about the idea of the commons
5: uh, i see uh, two reasons one is actually the because of digitization and because of all many other advances and globalization of knowledge knowledge has become very networked so you cannot really attribute it to one institution this includes all the uh, all the data created all the research that's done all the uh, products of research these are very international and actually global and they don't belong to one institution but at the same time because of the nature of knowledge and the accuracy we expect from it to be trustable we still need to curate this uh, knowledge so we still need institutions to look after what is science and what is pseudoscience and those institutions should be created and they are no more local then you can say the government should take care of it but many people say you know the government is not capable of handling such a big institution it's also not one institution Others says you know maybe market can take care of it but you know, it has not always worked, and market has other mechanisms. So both markets and governments have sort of not succeeded in managing this global resource of network knowledge. And so if you look at the institutions, the types of institutions, then there comes a third type of institution, which is the commons. So that's where we thought maybe we can give it a try uh, and look into solutions, into this paradigm of... Uh, existing organizations, which have a lot of historical uh, precedent as well.
0: And how does it work in practice then? How does what work? Commons, I mean this idea then of having a kind of common governance of knowledge which is not owned either by government or by commercial sector, how how can it work?
5: Uh, Yeah, so that's an interesting question, that was one of the reasons that we had this workshop today. You can of course look into historical examples how Commons have worked in the past and then uh, you can just study them, some of them have been there for 400 of years, uh, others only for a few years, but they are, have been successful and have become global. You can look at into how those work, but you can also try to bring together what we learned today was that at least there should be three elements that you should uh, take care of and also interaction between these elements you should have a a community you correct you have to need the institutions or a set of rules and you should also be in charge of a set of resources that's what we learned today and we have to identify that's what we did also in the workshop to identify for these cases what are these elements and now if we know the elements can we actually write the rules uh, or Form the institutions such that we can take care of it. How to bring it into the practice? That's you know uh, perhaps the next step.
0: And How close are we to having this kind of system? Uh,
5: inside the university, I don't think we have at all such a system. It's not at all there. It has not been even considered as a solution. I guess mm. there have been spaces, for example, that some. Collective spaces inside the territory of university have been run like those. But I don't think there is any serious institution I know of that has been run like this at all, no.
0: But how high is the need really? A common system in the academic world, is it really an urgent issue?
5: I think it is, because there have been in the past years an accelerating push for formalising open science and open innovation from many sides, including from private players, from governments, from inside the institution, but also from the citizen advocacy groups, to go for more transparency, openness. But this, as I said, still needs a sort of platform to to embed this open network knowledge. And I don't think we are prepared for it. We don't have it and my worry is that then this platform will just rise from the system or from the private side and then if we act too late we will be enslaved by the platforms we do it something like you know facebook you know there was a need for this huge network of people to connect but there was no public solution there was no collective solution and then there was a private institution that got the uh, massive scale and then became the sole player and now we are trying to fix it but it maybe it's too late they are affecting elections they are affecting all sort of behaviors which are uh, not uh, favorable for the uh, for the community or for society as a whole and if that happens with knowledge we will have the same issue i gave these examples in the workshop 25 years ago there was also another private institution Thomson reuters introduced journal impact factors and before that nobody was talking about it but after that people scientists found it oh this is so handy so i'm going to use this for my evaluations and now 25 years later we understand that these journal impact factors have had very detrimental effect on uh, how the community of the scientists function and evaluate themselves but we cannot really get rid of it because it has gone into the process of the system and now that can happen in a massive scale if we don't take care of the platforms and that's what I think we do need to raise awareness of uh, of, uh, of the of our collective responsibility, but also the institutions that take charge of platforms.
0: And how optimistic are you that this is actually going to happen?
5: I'm very optimistic. Uh, I think this was just the beginning, but with the knowledge and with the awareness that we would like to make this reproducible, I think we can set the stone and each time, you know, go to a next level and don't have to repeat this. and well, my hope this is this actually does not uh, fade away and just can be built upon.
0: And finally, a note on the workshop itself. It was built on the principle of others being able to start where it finishes and take the findings further.
5: Stanley explains. So what we have done in this, designing this workshop from the beginning was to make all the steps uh, reproducible and accessible. So everybody who hears this uh, and actually making this podcast is part of this Uh, effort of making this reproducible can go and look at all the steps that uh, we have taken. All the materials are also shared uh, and the hope is that they can take from here and then choose their cases which is really tailored to their needs and then give the knowledge to their participants and then really extract solutions by spending a day or two of Uh, concentrated effort like we had today on those cases and hopefully also they give feedback on the cases they could solve or what they have learned from their cases so we actually build this workshop or series of workshops as a a common resource for everybody who can take uh, as a procedure of coming up with solutions for problems which exist for community
0: Sunday Fires ending this podcast. The podcast was made up of a series of interviews and recordings made at a special workshop looking into the idea of the commons in academia. It was held at Utrecht University and organised by the Utrecht Young Academy, the Open Science Community Utrecht and the research collective The Waag. Socrates Schouten was the moderator for the hands-on sessions looking into the case studies. If you'd like to react to anything you've heard in the podcast, or maybe you'd like to organise a session on the Commons yourself, then you can get in touch with the Utrecht Young Academy. The email address is uya at uu.nl uya at My name is Andy Clark. Thank you for listening.